Welcome to The Poison Room, a podcast that's covering a far more light-hearted topic this week, because the last topic was a major downer, and also the world is doing a yikes right now. So, we're going to look at a book, or series of books, six volumes in total, called Appleton's Cyclopedia of American Biography. The first volume was published in 1887, the last was published in 1889. Not a bad output. It was published by D. Appleton and Company. Here's how the preface of the first volume begins. Appleton's Cyclopedia of American Biography is intended to supply a want that has long been felt by the nations of the New World, and more particularly by the people of the United States. Every scholar and every reader has recognised the benefit of the great French dictionaries of universal biography and the utility of the more recent National Biography of Great Britain, now in course of publication. Each nation should, if possible, have its own cyclopedia of biography. The Belgian, British and German dictionaries at present, in progress, are instances of such work in the Old World. It is proposed to provide a cyclopedia of biography for the New World worthy to rank with them. The cyclopedia will include the names of above 15,000 prominent native and adopted citizens of the United States, including living persons, from the earliest settlement of the country. Also the names of several thousand eminent citizens of Canada, Mexico, Brazil, Chile, Peru, and all the other countries of North and South America. The great aim has been to embrace all noteworthy persons of the New World and to give biographies that shall embody with sufficient fullness the latest results of historical research, rendering it a reference book of the highest order. The work will also contain the names of nearly 1,000 men of foreign birth who, like Bishop Berkeley, Braddock, Burgoyne, Cabot, Columbus, Cornwallis, Lafayette, Montcalm and Whitefield, are closely identified with American history. So, what's so interesting about this cyclopedia? How does it fit the theme of this podcast? Well, before I can explain that, I'm going to introduce you to four men included in the cyclopedia. Here's the first one. Gustav Melchior Imhofer, Brazilian explorer, born near Graz, Styria, in 1593, died in Bahia de Todos os Santos in 1651. He became a Jesuit and was attached in 1624 to the missions of South America. He resided many years in Peru, crossed the Andes to the headwaters of the Amazon in 1636, and descended that river from the Napo to its mouth in 1637, two years before the expedition of Tejera. He arranged his notes in Pará prior to his leaving for Spain, when the expedition of Tejera arrived in that city, 1639, and, hearing that Acuna, who had accompanied Tejera, proposed to go to Madrid and present the Council of the Indies with a relation of the expedition, he asked leave from his superiors to sail in advance of Acuna, arriving in Madrid in November 1639, and published immediately the relation of his own journey, Descubrimiento del Rio de las Amazonas. In an introduction, the author urged the King of Spain to conquer and civilise the vast country that he had explored. Acuna, who had arrived in Madrid in the meanwhile, published his own narrative, trying to cast discredit upon that of Imhofer, and succeeded so well that although the latter's narrative is better and more complete than that of Acuna, his name is scarcely known, and many historians have forgotten that he was the first European to describe the Amazon. Combeville, who gave a French version of Acuna's voyage, published also a version of Imhofer's narrative, and the latter was also translated into English under the title A Relation of a Journey Along the River Amazon. Imhofer returned afterwards to Bahia and was rector of the College of the Jesuits. He is also the author of Dictionarius Linguae Amazoniae, Peruviae Societatis Historia, and Vitae Illustrium Missionarium Qui in Peruviae Wixerunt, published in Bibliotheca Nova Societatis Jesu, edited by Father Bernard of Bologna. Cool. Interesting life. Lots of travel. Bit of academic rivalry. Okay. Next up. Berhard Hunner, German navigator. Born in Heidelberg in 1547, died in Nuremberg in 1611. He entered the Spanish service and was chief pilot attached to the colony of New Spain in 1599. Philip III, believing in the fabulous Strait of Venian, where legend placed an immensely rich city, was dissatisfied with the preceding explorations of Viscanino and Alacon, ordered the Count of Monterey, governor of New Spain, to send out a new expedition. Monterey gave the mission to Huna and Juan Fernandez, and they sailed from Acapulco in May 1660 with two vessels, touching at Zalagua, where they separated. Juan Fernandez sailed to Cape Mendocino, 
and promised to wait there for Huna, who resolved to enter the country and obtain information from the natives. But the Indians of California attacked the Spanish and killed a great number of them, and obliged Huna to re-embark. He dispatched a small schooner to Fernandez to call him back, and together they sailed for Acapulco, arriving in September. In March 1661, Huna sailed again, but was more cautious. He spent nine months at sea before sighting Cape San Sebastian, January 1602, on the Bay of Monterey, where he resolved to winter. He succeeded in establishing friendly intercourse with the Aborigines, and was soon convinced that the city of Aeneum was fabulous. Although the clever pilot could not realise the object of his mission, he nevertheless resolved to render it useful in some way, and so he set to work to correct the chart made by Alicon, and construct an exact one of the Gulf of California. He consumed two years in the work, and performed it so well that future navigators using his charts were able to go from Acapulco to Monterey in two months, when before ten months was considered a quick passage. The charts made by Huna are in use for over a century. They were published in Acapulco in 1661, and reprinted in Lisbon and Seville. The Algemeine Encyclopédie of Ursch and Gruber says he left an undiscovered manuscript. Okay, Explorer. Got a bunch of his men killed. Not great, but at least he made some nice maps. And an intriguing unpublished manuscript. Nice. Jorn Oskar, Swedish naturalist, born in Badnichtor, Sweden, in 1741, died in Paris in 1792. He was the preceptor of the family of the Duke of Mirapoi, and owing to the protection of that nobleman, obtained from Louis XVI in 1776 a mission to South America to study the flora of that country. He explored for ten years in the vast regions including between the River Amazon and the River Plate, amid dangers of all kinds, suffering great hardship and sometimes persecution from the Spanish and Portuguese authorities. Although he was kept prisoner during 1780-82 by the Guanani Indians, he formed a herbarium with 1,100 specimens and returning to Paris in 1776, published Le Legumineres Aborescentes de l'Amérique du Sud, a work which caused sensation in scientific circles as the first of its kind ever published in Europe. A Dictionnaire raisonné de l'histoire naturelle de l'Amérique du Sud. Choix de mémoire présenté l'Académie des sciences sur divers objets de l'histoire naturelle and Dizondon l'Amérique du Sud. The Herbarium of Yorm forms part of the collection of the Museum of Natural History in Paris. Huh. Shame it's a bit scant on the detail about what hardships and persecution he suffered, and also what he did to upset the Guarani. Charles Henry, Ouon de Penanster, French botanist, born in Dinan in 1727, died in Santo Domingo in 1771. He was descended from an ancient family of Brittany and left the French navy in 1751 to devote himself to botany. He had seen in New Spain the cochineal insect, of which the Mexicans forbade the sale to foreigners, and resolving to naturalise it in Santo Domingo, he went in 1752 to Mexico under the disguise of a Spanish physician. He remained there three years in the country, learning how to breed the insect and also ascertaining the use of the nopal plant on which it feeds, and having at last obtained specimens of both in 1755, he transported them, at great personal risk, to Santo Domingo, where their cultivation soon became a prosperous industry. Louis XV made Uon Knight of St. Louis. The Governor-General of Santo Domingo granted him a large tract of land near the city of Cape Francais, and the inhabitants of the colony, through a public subscription, presented him with a gold medal in 1758. Uon never returned to the Spanish possessions, as the Mexicans were greatly incensed against him for depriving them of the tribute for cochineal from European countries. He made Santo Domingo his home and devoted the remainder of his life to the welfare of the colony. He was pensioned as a royal botanist in 1763 and founded in Cape Francais the Botanical Society of the Philadelphs, establishing also a botanical garden, which is still one of the ornaments of the city, and opening a museum of natural history, the contents of which he had himself collected. He published Traité de culture de Nopal, de l'éducation de la cochineal et de l'eau et climatation à son domain, reprinted in Memoir de l'Académie des Sciences, and Voyage à Guarasca dans la Nouvelle Espagne. Wow, nice legacy. We still use cochineal insects today for red food dyes, and a few other things. And in the past it was used as a paint pigment. 
so I guess he was pretty important. But why are these four men of interest to us? You may have noticed that they all have some things in common. They're all Europeans who went off and explored parts of Mexico, Central or South America. They all wrote something important for their field, and none of them died in the United States. There's one more thing that they all have in common. None of them existed. And yet, each of them has an entry in Appleton's Cyclopedia of American Biography. Somehow, these entries got published in a book, without anyone noticing that these men didn't exist. And no one notices for the next 30 years. Or, well, no one who noticed bothered to tell anyone about it for the next 30 years. The cyclopedia just sits on the shelves in libraries and homes, without any signs that anything might be amiss. In 1919, the problem of the presence of some fictitious entries was finally brought to a public attention by John Barnhart in an article published in the Journal of the New York Botanical Garden. Not gonna lie, guys, I am seriously unimpressed with Barnhart, because apparently he'd known for many years that there were fictitious entries in the cyclopedia and just didn't bother to tell anyone. Because, hey, they weren't doing any harm, right? And apparently it was just inconceivable or something to Barnhart that they might very well start to cause problems in the future. I mean, why intervene to stop something becoming a problem in the first place when you can just wait until it becomes a problem and thus far harder to actually do something about, right? Let it do some damage first and then we'll maybe think about telling people about this thing we could have told them about before that would have prevented the situation had we done so. That's certainly a strategy that has always worked well for everyone, ever. So, 30 years after the Cyclopedia was published, Barnhart finally decides to share what he knows with the rest of us, and also what he doesn't know which is how many fictitious entries there actually are. Barnhart was a botanist, so the entries he'd generally found, and those which he had the expertise to identify as fake, were those of botanists. He presents the reader with 14 entries which he's sure are fictional, and mentions a few others he personally thinks are fictional, but concedes there might be some room for doubt about. Don't worry, I'm not going to subject you to a full account of all 14 biographies. Or any of them, actually. But there are some details they reveal that are worth noting. As with the four you've already heard about, all of these men were born outside the United States. They all died outside the United States. They were all explorers in some way, and all of them conducted whatever exploration or research they did in countries south of the USA. They're working in Mexico or Central or South America. They all also wrote things. Quite a few things, actually. But obviously, because they're all jolly foreigners, not a single thing they wrote was in English. It was in French, German or Latin. Or Spanish or Dutch or Italian. So unless you know one of those languages, you're probably not going to bother to try and track them down. And even if you do know one of those languages, and want to read these books, but can't find them in your local library, there's a convenient reason for that too. Not a single text where the place of publication is mentioned was published in the United States. Most of them were published in Europe. One was published in Rio Janeiro, and no place of publication is given for the rest. Of course, another way to get around an absence of a manuscript that should have made a profound difference to the course of history is for it to just get lost. Like one of the manuscripts of Giuseppe Igalino, who investigated the Mexican hieroglyphs, i.e. Maya script. In Igalino's non-existent lifetime, the script was still basically wholly undeciphered, but Igalino t- 
totally found the key to deciphering them. Alas, the manuscript containing his decipherment was conveniently lost during a shipwreck in 1808. Barnhart makes some small comments on the articles after listing each one, noting that sometimes the works attributed to the men are real, but were written by someone else. In other instances, the titles of the work seem to be adapted from actual publications, with minor changes to the title and date of publication. In another case, Barnhart notes that the details of one of the other fictional men, Edouard Sylvie, appears to be a garbled account of a real man, Louis Fuley, with dates and names changed, and other facts altered. Louis Fuley actually appears in the Cyclopedia himself, and Barnhart describes his entry as more or less reliable, which doesn't really inspire much confidence as to the quality of some of the entries about actual people. But back to our fake men. Some of them were tangentially involved in events that were real, giving them a veneer of plausibility, like Frédéric Lotte, who was assigned as the botanist to the genuinely real Malaspina expedition. The expedition left from Spain, sailed down through the North Atlantic and into the South Atlantic, and hit South America at what is now Uruguay. It then looped around the bottom of the continent and started back up the other side. Alas, at this point Lotte got ill and they left him at Concepcion, about halfway up the coast of Chile. Somehow, he gets himself to Acapulco in Mexico, which, as the crow flies, if crows flew across oceans, is around 6,541 kilometres from Concepcion. Lotta's catching up with the ship isn't as absurd as it sounds on face value, because Malaspina stopped at Acapulco twice, the first time on his way up to find our old friend, the Northwest Passage. Failing to find it, he sailed back down and landed at Acapulco again, which, presumably, would have been where Lotta would have rejoined them had he, you know, existed. Anyway, he didn't stay with the expedition very long. He left again to go off exploring on his own, travelling through Mexico, Peru, Chile, and Argentina. So the forger has attached him to a real event, which gives an immediate sense of plausibility and explains why he's important enough to be in the cyclopedia whilst also explaining why you might not have heard of him if you know anything about the expedition. Cunning. Barnhart's entire comment on Lotta's entry is, quote, Wholly fictitious. The botanists of the Malaspina expedition were Thaddaeus Henke and Louis Ney. End quote. And speaking of Louis Ney, Barnhart suggests that he, along with Karl Sigismund Kanth, were used as the inspiration for the name of another fictional entry, Isidore Charles Sigismund Ney, though uh, our anonymous writer got the accent in Ney on the wrong E. On other entries, Barnhart's only remark is simply wholly fictitious. So, in some cases, real works are being wholesale assigned to fictional people, in other entries, real works are having their titles adapted and reassigned. In others, actual events from other people's lives are being repurposed for the fictional men. And in others, their names are being combined to form new identities. Which makes me rather suspicious for the entries Barnhart marked just as wholly fictitious. Seems like it might actually be the case that he just didn't recognise the sources of some of the information. Barnhart's whole article is pretty much, I hear people have been using these fake articles in this cyclopedia, here's a list of 14 of them that I found, and genuinely finishes the paper with the comment, surely further comment is superfluous. No, Barnhart, no. Further comment would not be superfluous, because people have questions, like, what other entries are fake? And who the hell did this? And to what extent can we trust anything in this damn cyclopedia? Unfortunately, no one asks those questions. A summary of Barnhart's article appeared in the New York Sun on October 12, 1919, but that's it. 
nothing more is published about the matter until 1936, when nearly half a century since the last volume of the Cyclopedia was published, a guy called Frank O'Brien, who collected odd bits of trivia about mistakes in encyclopedias and books, wrote in to the New Yorker to tell them about it. The published article is just a summary of Barnhart's original paper. Coincidentally, and I genuinely do mean coincidentally, a young researcher by the name of Margaret Castle Schindler was submitting her master's thesis to Columbia University. The thesis is called Bibliographica Imaginaria, an investigation of the fictitious element in Appleton's Cyclopedia of American Biography. Alas, the thesis isn't available anywhere. Well, it is available in one place. Columbia University still have a copy of it in their archives, but they charge $30 for a copy. It pains me not to be able to check it, but I just can't justify that expense right now. And even if I could, some weird virus thing has forced the university library to close, so I'd have to wait until they opened again anyway. Luckily, Schindler did also publish an article essentially summarising her findings the next year, and that I can access. The frustrating thing is that she doesn't explain the decision she made when deciding what type of entries to look at. Apparently, those are in the elusive thesis. She looked at the letter H, and specifically at people born before 1800 and dead by 1850, focusing on those who were associated with the history of Latin America. For reasons I presume she explains in the thesis, she excludes entries about indigenous people. She also restricted herself to using only books that she could find in New York City, since that's where the cyclopedia was written. Obviously, it's perfectly possible that our forger had books in their own collection that weren't available elsewhere in New York, but given that this is a master's thesis, and there's no internet in 1936, I'll give her a pass on that one. For the same reason, I'll give her another pass for not checking the accuracy of the entries on people who were definitely real. One of the pieces of information that she does share from her thesis is that someone else, or someone's else, had also found some fake entries. The staff working on Joseph Sabin's Dictionary of Books Relating to America had used the Cyclopedia as one of their sources when they resumed work on the project. The project had published its first volume back in 1868, and they churned out 19 volumes and started volume 20 between then and 1892, when the project fell dormant due to deaths, other responsibilities, and lack of funding. They'd got as far as SI. It was taken up again in 1925, and the first volume of the revived effort was published in 1927. The first 19 and a bit volumes had been published before Appleton's Cyclopedia even began, but when they resumed their work, it was available as a resource. The staff quickly noticed the problem with some of the entries, because, you know, they were actually cross-checking the information. And by the time they got to letter V, the amount of unverifiable titles was so striking that they started keeping a record, and ended up with a list of 17 names. Two of them had appeared on Barnhart's list, so that's another 15 new fakes, giving us a total of 29 so far. But back to Schindler. She found another 15 articles in the H section, which she thought were fictitious, along with three more from other letters. And if I give you a few of the names Schindler found, Antoine Horne, Lucas van Houden, Nicholas Piet Holmstedt, Melchior Kluber, you might have a suspicion that none of them are from the United States. And you'd be right. All born outside the US. All died outside the US. How about that? The total lack of evidence for any of the publications these men made continued to be part of the evidence against them. 
even though some of the things they'd written had supposedly caused a sensation at the time, or were still considered an authority, were totally untraceable. She consulted the catalogues of the Library of Congress, the British Museum, and the Bibliothèque Nationale. And again, no internet, she's checking physical catalogues here, and couldn't find any mention of them. And this is particularly telling for the books that were supposedly published in France, since, by law, a copy of the book should have been deposited at the Bibliothèque Nationale. One or two missing from the catalogue, and you might forgive a careless publisher, but all of them? Nah. There's no book listed, because there ain't no book. One of the most egregious fake entries she found is one that you heard at the start of the episode. Charles... Charles-Henri Huon de Penanster the one who supposedly smuggled cochineal insects and the nopal plant on which they fed out of Mexico in 1755, changing international trade forever by breaking the Spanish monopoly on the product. Yeah, he didn't exist. But the whole smuggling the bug and the plant it lives on out of Mexico did happen. Just by someone else at a different time. It was actually done by Nicolas Joseph Thierry de Menonville in 1777, which is also in the cyclopedia, in the correct place, with a correct description of his exploit. And the three books that Juan de Penanster supposedly wrote are actually just chopped and changed pieces of the titles of the one book Thierry de Menonville wrote. The inspiration for other entries was easily identifiable too. For instance, remember Bernhard Hühner? He's the German navigator who, along with Juan Fernandez, was sent off in search of the Strait of Anya and its mythical rich city on the orders of Philip III of Spain because Phil was dissatisfied with the lack of progress being made by the explorers Vizcaino and Alarcon. Huner and Fernandez split up to explore, and Huner got a bunch of his crew killed, then met up again with Fernandez. In a later expedition, he realised the city he was looking for didn't exist, and decided to make his voyage useful by spending two years correcting Alacon's charts, and did such a good job that he cut down the journey time between Acapulco to Monterey from ten months to two. Actually, the super-useful and detailed charts were made by Sebastian Vizcaino. Yeah, the Vizcaino mentioned in Huna's entry. Vizcaino was in part searching for the Strait of Anion, but this idea of a mythical city being there seems to be our forger's own invention, as far as I can tell. Presumably an elaboration on the idea that the area accessible by passing through the strait was rich with gold and pearls though that also seems to be something they thought true of California in general at the time. But hey, mythical cities are more romantic, right? And romanticising events does seem to be a trope with our forger. Now, Schindler herself notes the cribbing from Vizcaino, but I'm pretty sure the writer was also taking details from Juan Fernandez's life. See, Vizcaino was indeed responsible for making some useful and detailed charts, but the whole cutting the route between Acapulco in Mexico to Monterey in California was, I think, also drawing on the fact that Fernandez was responsible for the discovery of a route which made sailing from Peru to Chile a lot faster, because it avoided getting caught up in the northerly Humboldt current. So. Adding the names discovered by Schindler, our total of fakes is now at 47. Well, I'm going to say 46, because it seems like one of the articles is actually more of a huge fictionalisation of a genuinely real person, rather than a wholesale fabrication. As far as Schindler could tell, Hue de Navarre was actually a real person. It's just that everything in the article about him, bar one fact, is made up. But we're not done yet. Oh no. Just after Schindler published her article, a Jesuit by the name of Joseph Cantillon 
published another article about the subject, focusing on Jesuits recorded in the cyclopaedia. He had possibly shared his list of suspected fakes with a publication called Letters the year prior. Letters was a notes and inquiries type publication, but probably more reliable than Yahoo Answers. After seeing O'Brien's article in the New Yorker, someone wrote into the letters asking for more info, and if anyone knew who done it. I preface all of this with possibly because I can't actually find the letters article either. Probably because the damn thing is called Letters which is a great name in a pre-digital era, and a completely awful name when you're trying to search for it. But luckily, Cantillon published his findings separately. Both Schindler and Cantillon were way more diligent than Barnhart. Obviously, Schindler could just open the volume containing the H entries and start listing names, but if you're looking for Jesuits, you'd probably start with the index, right? Just check for people filed under Jesuit. However, he realised very quickly that the index for the Cyclopedia was rubbish, and so went through all six volumes individually, checking every single entry to see if it was a Jesuit. Props to you, my man. He made a note of the name of every Jesuit he thought sounded suspicious, and then proceeded to investigate each one in turn. He found no fictional entries in Volume 1, but there was one entry in Volume 2 that was... embellished. A Jesuit by the name of Raphael Ferrer had his story expanded upon in a very sensationalist way. If the account in Appleton's Cyclopedia was turned into a film today, it would bill itself as inspired by a true story. When we hit volume three, the forgeries start pouring in. Jose de Jesu Maria Ignacio, Manuel Yurava, Edouard Etienne Yalbert, Antoine Enrique Haubert, Gustave Frédéric Klein, Matthias Lottenschialt, Giudone Gabriel Charles Henri Moraud, Giuseppe Alberoni de Orlando, Etienne Pecheron, Charles-Henri Quentin, Alexander Sibyl, Bernard von Uffenbach, Karl von Ferdain, Louis Fiorentin Wallon, and Juan Ortiz de Zapata, to name but a few. His list includes Imhofer, the Jesuit who explored the Amazon and the Napo River two years before the Teixeira expedition, and who had his reputation besmirched by his rival Acuna, to such an extent that he's barely known now. Yeah, it turns out the reason he's barely known now is less to do with the slander of Acuna, a genuine historical figure, and more to do with the fact that he never bloody existed. And guess what else? If you look at the entry on Acuna, you'll see that the actually existing book that he actually wrote is titled Nuevo Descubrimiento del Gran Rio de las Amazonas. I know you all remember the title of Imhofer's book, but just in case you didn't catch it the first time around, it was Descubrimiento del Rio de las Amazonas. Literally, all the forger did was remove the words Nuevo and Gran. In total, Cantillon found 43 entries about what he termed phantom Jesuits, excluding the fictionalised account of Ferreira. Eight of them had been found before, so Cantillon is adding 35 new entries to the list of fakes. New total, 81 phantoms. And yes, they all follow the same trend of being not Americans. They were all born outside the United States, usually in Europe, though there are some from the West Indies, South America, and even one from Canada. And they all died outside the United States too. Okay. So this cyclopedia is riddled with mistakes, and we still don't even know how many, but at least it was out of print by 1936, right? So the copies in the libraries and people's homes will probably just disappear slowly. Oh, what's that you say? Reprinted in 1968? 
without any corrections? Without any notice about the fictional entries? God damn it, people. Okay, but surely, like, in reviews, people pointed that out, right? If we just go find a review of it in a journal... One of the basic biographical tools in any research library for persons who died between 1789 and 1901. The reprint is faithful to the original, particularly the countless steel engravings which do much to add to the value of the work, by giving portraits of lesser-known Americans. Articles range in length from a paragraph to several pages and are generally considered accurate, although some of the considered opinion is dated. Anyone who enjoys lesser-known characters may spend pleasant nights with these handy volumes. Take, for example, Isaiah Williamson, who gave away close to 15 million, never married, and lives obscurely and almost penuriously for many years. It is with the obscure that this work is primarily of value to libraries, and on that level it has no rivals. God damn it, people! Those are literally the entries you need to be most cautious with. Don't worry, I checked. Isaiah Williamson did actually exist. So, what happened then? Well, you know how it took 30 years for anyone to say anything after it was first published? It took another 25 years after the reprint for anyone to bother saying anything about it again. No one seems to remember there's a problem until 1993 when a new article was published on the matter by John Blythe Dobson. For his study, Dobson decided to look at all of the articles under I and some of those under G. Following Schindler's unknown reasoning, he also missed out any articles about indigenous people, but followed her criteria of needing to be born before 1800 and dead by 1850. If you're wondering about the precise reason behind those dates, I can't tell you. But looking at the lists of Barnhart, Cantillon, and Sabin's crew, none of those entries would have been excluded by these rules. So it seems to be a reasonable cutoff date. He also followed the don't bother to check manuscripts that it's unlikely would be available to the writers of the Cyclopedia and don't bother to check the accuracy of the entries on real people rules but he discarded the rule of looking only at people who had something to do with the history of Latin America, which led to him discovering two people he would have missed had he stuck to that, which in turn raises the question of whether Schindler missed any people from her research. Dobson adds six more articles to the list of forgeries, with nine more he couldn't confirm the existence of. That brings us to 90 phantoms so far though it should be noted that Dobson also checked the work of Barnhart, Schindler and Cantillon, and by his stricter standards of proof, puts 21 names in the definitely fake category, with 65 in a group of spuriousness suggested, and labels two as spuriousness tentatively suggested. Oh, and if you remember back in 1919, Barnhart had included four on his list which he thought were probably fake, but he wasn't sure about. Well, Dobson had done some poking around and discovered that one of those was in fact a real person. An obscure figure, certainly, but one that definitely existed. Okay, so let's get to the question I know you all have. What gnarly toadstool was behind this nonsense? Unfortunately, one of the most helpful pieces of evidence in solving the mystery the house records of the D. Appleton Century Company, were lost. And even by 1938, most of the people who had been involved in the production of the Cyclopedia were dead. And they're certainly all dead now. None of the entries are individually attributed to their authors. At the front of each volume, there's a list of some of the contributors, listing some of the articles they contributed but it's not a complete list of what they wrote, nor even a complete list of all the people who wrote entries. And obviously none of the articles actually attributed to people include any that we know are fake. So far, at least. Frustrating, right? The most certain thing we know is that it's someone who either wasn't involved at all before Volume 3, and came on board at that point, 
or someone who only had the idea of making up entries when they got to volume three. We also know that there was a regular staff of nine people working under the managing editor who were given a weekly salary, but that contributors were paid based on the work they produced rather than salaried. Specifically, their pay was determined by the quantity of material they produced rather than the quality. And we know that contributors were encouraged to suggest new names for inclusion and that no one was fact-checking the work. Both Schindler and Cantillon thought that the author must have had some sort of scientific training, whatever that means, and sufficient linguistic knowledge to adapt titles in six languages. Schindler is also certain that they were familiar with American geography and history, given that most of the events and places the phantoms interact with are real. Honestly, I'm not convinced. We've seen how little adaption some of the titles took. Just removing a couple of words, or splitting up a long title into three by breaking up clauses. Sure, you need some understanding of language, but I really don't think that's a particularly high bar. Just knowing a bit about one of those languages is enough for someone to figure out how to adapt titles, and the fact that they do make mistakes shows that they're not fluent in them. Further. Each of these researchers found multiple instances where the biographies of the phantoms are very obviously drawn from real people, even people who are also included in the cyclopedia. Sure, there's definitely some romanticisation going on, but our forger is really happy to just copy wholesale when they can. And if they're doing that, then they don't really need to know that much. Dobson even identified one of the sources the forger almost definitely used, Louis-Gabriel Michaud's Biographie Universelle. It was widely available at the time, and Dobson managed to match up some of the cyclopedia's phantoms with entries in the Biographie Universelle. As for having a familiarity with American geography and history, well, I'm sure they weren't completely ignorant of it, but part of the evidence against many of these fakes are mistakes in history and geography. Barnhart notes that in one entry, the forger puts Cayenne, the capital of French Guiana, in Peru. In the same entry, our forger makes his subject the secretary of an astronomical expedition at the ripe old age of 16. In another entry, the subject was supposed to have met another famous scientist in America two years before said scientist ever set foot in the country. Schindler points out that in the case of Goulas Henrion, the forger puts him in Calau, Peru, in 1783 at the start of an outbreak of Asiatic cholera. But the epidemic didn't reach Peru until 1868, 85 years later. Schindler also points out a whole bunch of other problems with both geography and the dates of historic events or movements of historical figures. Cantillon frequently notes the author's mistakes about the Jesuits. There are two separate phantom biographies that claim a Jesuit was in Brazil prior to their actual arrival in 1549, and another where a Jesuit was supposedly working in Para 24 years before the Jesuits had any residences there. In another entry, the author mistakenly refers to a Jesuit residence as a convent. There are a bunch of little mistakes like that which suggest that the author didn't have any particular knowledge about Jesuits beyond what one might reasonably acquire by spending a few hours in, say, a library, or reading multiple biographies of actual Jesuits to crib details from them. But Cantillon also thinks that the author has a notable French bias, it being the language he uses most, with his subjects being mostly French or writing in French. I am a hack and a fraud, so I didn't actually check all of the entries to see if this was genuinely the case, but I did note the nationalities of the Jesuits, and there's only one more French Jesuit than there are German Jesuits, and there are quite a few Spanish Jesuits too. So, maybe some confirmation bias going on there because Cantillon has a theory about who the culprit is. He very confidently 
identifies him as William Christian Tenner, a contributor who attended university in Paris. Tenner is listed as a contributor for volumes 3 to 6. Of course, none of the entries he's credited with are our phantoms, but Cantillon lists seven of the entries he's credited with, and seems to think the fact that they're all French is convincing proof. The nail in the coffin, as far as Cantillon is concerned, is the fact that around a year after the final volume had been completed, Tenor was sentenced to a year in Sing Sing prison after being convicted of forgery and blackmail. Apparently, he had gone to several publishers with forged letters, claiming that they owed money to people he knew. Money which he needed to dig himself out of a financial hole due to a fondness for gambling. The publishers took him to court and won. That's according to Cantillon, anyway. He doesn't cite a source, and it would take more time than I can justify to fact-check that info, especially since Schindler spent quite a lot of time trying to figure out who exactly he was, without any luck. Tenor was an assumed name, apparently. Also, according to Cantillon, Bernhardt privately expressed his opinion that Tenor was the guilty party. So, Cantillon's theory is that Tenor faked the entries to get more money to sustain his gambling habit, and after the cyclopedia was finished, turned to forging letters of debt to various publishers to replace the lost income. What Cantillon glosses over is the fact that, whilst it's true that all seven of the entries credited to Tenor are about French people, hardly surprising given he studied in Paris, most of them are soldiers, authors, or politicians of some sort. Only one of them spent time solely in Latin America. The rest either travelled more widely, or only spent time in the United States or Canada. Only one of them was a naturalist, and none of them were Jesuits. I really don't think this is as convincing as Cantillon wants it to be. John Dobson isn't convinced by it either. He points out that Tenor isn't credited with a single article on a Latin American person. Which, you know, if they're a specialist in Latin America, you might expect to see. And as I already said, most of the entries he is credited with don't involve Latin America at all. Further, Dobson points out that in one of the entries, there's a fairly egregious error in the French of the titles of the fictional books written by one of our fictional people. So, surely that kind of counts against the idea that being good at French was a prerequisite for being the forger, and against the idea that it was tenor. Finally, Dobson also notes that there's a significant difference between the type of forgery tenor was convicted of and writing fake articles in a cyclopedia. I'm not sure how convinced I am by that one, to be honest. Escalation is a thing. But Dobson isn't just dismissing everyone else's theory that Tenor is the culprit. He has his own theory. He puts the blame on Herman Ritter, the head of the Spanish department, and the only person credited with articles on South and Central America. He thinks it's unlikely that Ritter wouldn't have noticed any of the fake articles as he was going through them. Though, I'll point out that at the start of his article, Dobson suggests that the reason they went unnoticed was because of how rushed the production of the cyclopedia was. Dobson's nail in the coffin is that Ritter took over as department head when they started working on... guess which volume? Yep, Tenner and Ritter joined the team at the same time, Volume 3 onwards. My problem with this theory is that I'm pretty sure Ritter is one of the people who was being paid a salary. But I don't know if the salaried people were being paid on top of that in the same way other contributors were. My immediate assumption is that they wouldn't be, but I am absolutely just guessing. So that's the end of that story. Except, you know, of course it's not because the book was still out there in the world. Cantillon found that the Catholic Encyclopedia, released between 1907 and 1914, used the highly fictionalised account of Rafael Ferreira's life almost verbatim in its pages. 
In a cursory search pre-internet, Schindler found four bibliographies, one biographical dictionary, and a science article, also using information about the non-existent people from the cyclopedia. And in a cursory search post-internet, I found... (sighs) There are several sites that have just copied wholesale the contents of the cyclopedia, with no knowledge that there are fake entries in there. I've notified a couple of websites, and edited some Wikipedia articles. Like Raphael Bloody Ferrez. Cause, yeah, that was using the fictional nonsense from the cyclopedia too. If the next episode is late, it's because I am busy making the internet be less wrong. Or working on developing a full list of all the phantoms in the cyclopedia. You think I'm joking? I'm not. This forger is my new arch-nemesis. For one last bit of absurdity, I'll leave you with the fact that out of all of these people writing literal articles about Appleton's cyclopedia, nearly all of them, with the exception of Schindler, spelt the name of the book wrong. There's an apostrophe in the title, but it goes after the S in Appleton's, not before it which is where everyone else puts it. Even Cantillon and Dobson, who had actually read Schindler's work. These people spent tens of hours, if not hundreds, poring over these volumes, finding errors in it, and after all that, they couldn't even spell the title right. And that's the end. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please subscribe on whatever podcatcher you're using rate and review the show, especially on iTunes. Let me know on Twitter, at PoisonRoomPod, or by email, PoisonRoomPodcast at gmail.com, who you think the forger was. Tanner? Clater? Both? Neither? If you have questions, comments, corrections, feedback, want to suggest a topic, etc., send those to the Twitter or emails too. Alternatively, if you're quarantined with nothing to do, or even not quarantined but still don't have anything to do, then help me in my quest to defeat my arch-nemesis and find all the phantoms lurking in this forsaken cyclopedia. Transcripts of all episodes are available at poisonroom.com, where you can also see the references and bibliography. As always, if the sources are publicly available, they're linked to. You have been listening to The Poison Room, a podcast that firmly believes in fact-checking work before publication. The voices of Appleton's Cyclopedia were Tom Embry and Kirsty Reynolds. The voice of the review of the Cyclopedia was Murphy Terrett. The voice in your ears has been slightly paranoid one or more of the sources for this story was also just making stuff up.